0: encourage you, if you want to follow along, I I chose this morning out of the lectionary passage of the morning, I'm not going to be referring out of the uh, gospel, but rather out of the epistle, which is in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to begin in verse 2, and I'm going to read this out of the voice translation. It will read a little bit different than some of your translations, but it says this, um, Be like newborn babies crying out for spiritual milk that will help you grow into salvation if you have tasted and found the Lord to be good. Come to him, the living stone, who was rejected by people but accepted by God as chosen and precious. Like living stones, let yourself be assembled into a spiritual house, a holy order of priests who offer up spiritual sacrifices that will be acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, the anointed. For it says in the words of the prophet Isaiah, See here I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever depends upon him will never be disgraced. To you who believed and depend on him, he is precious. But to you who don't, remember the words of the psalmist. The stone the builders rejected has been laid as the cornerstone, the very stone that holds together the entire foundation. And Isaiah, a stone that blocks their way and a rock that trips them. They stumble because they don't follow the word of God as they're destined to do. But you are a chosen people set aside to be royal, hold an order of priests, a holy nation, God's own so that you may proclaim the wondrous acts of the one who called you out of inky darkness into shimmering light. I love that, the way that word that. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you speak to us through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pacis Augusta is the altar of peace of Caesar Augustus. It was commissioned July the fourteenth, thirteen BC, thirteen years before Christ. It was consecrated on January the thirtieth, if if you've got those uh, shots. There, yeah, if you uh, it was consecrated January 30th, 9 BC, and it was built to commemorate Caesar Augustus and his accomplishment. And his biggest accomplishment of bringing unity and peace to the Roman Empire. And so it's it's under Caesar Augustus that we begin to see this massive empire that had influence all around the world. Now, this... Altar piece is literally just a huge stone, an open-air building, and it's got these stone reliefs, as you can see on the outside of it, made to commemorate the great rulers and emperors. And then it portrayals a prosperous Roman culture, but inside of the building, there's no roof because it was intended to be an altar where sacrifices would be given, sacrifices, blood sacrifices of animals offered for the peace that had been given to them and that it would be maintained. Because the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, was held up as the highest of all virtues. So the altar of peace, this building that actually still exists, and I'll tell you more about that here in a little while, but it really was and is a picture of Roman civil religion. And really, shorter put, it's a picture of civil religion. Uh, and in that in that atmosphere, in that place where they lived, everyone was told this, this idea of peace, Pax Romana, held up as the virtue because that peace was providing everybody in the empire prosperity, abundance, provision. And as history reveals, any revolt against that empire of peace was put down severely and swiftly with violence and force. So the stability and the peace of Rome was this highest virtue and it represented the power of the empire. This altar of peace, it came at great cost throughout the empire but it was a picture of it. And for hundreds of years, this altar literally stood on the the banks of the Tiber River in Rome, but it was a picture of the dominance of the empire to the known world. Jesus begins his ministry. And if you recall, if we put our thinking caps on, we think about how the gospel writers tell us and they give us some glimpses of things that begin to occur. Well, it's in this atmosphere in which Rome is ruling over Israel, right? And so, when when the Jewish the, the the Jewish people begin to hear about the idea of a king, that's not seen as something that's really wonderful for a lot of folks. In fact, for the Romans, and then for their 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 uh, leaders that were put in charge over Israel they were quite concerned because any revolt would be dealt with severely and so they didn't want any unrest they they wanted to be friends with Rome because at least at least we could live somewhat free so when there was an idea that there might be another king it caught a lot of people's attention now Again, for the Jews as well as for the Romans. Uh, Now, remember there were also some of Jesus' disciples. You remember some of them were known as zealots? Okay. Well, let's get a little background on those guys. The zealots, they were known, there, there were a couple of different groups of them. One were the Essenes, and then there were the others that were actually known as the dagger men. The dagger men were, for all intents and purposes, how we would relate to them today, they were just nothing but guerrilla warfare kinds of individuals. They would sneak behind Roman soldiers with daggers, kill them, and run off to be not seen. And so, you know, that was, that was what Rome feared, and they would try to put that down as quickly as possible. So if you were known as a zealot, you're already in the crosshairs of Rome, James and John, are zealots. And there are others that are like, you remember, you know, let's call fire down from heaven, O oh God, because that's what a king does. He resists those who are in, you know, ruling over them. So the sign of, of the empire, one of the signs for, for anyone who would revolt against that empire was this continual reminder of the power of the Roman sword. If you, want to, you, if you rise up, the sword is going to be coming and it's going to be calling your name. And to challenge the sword of Rome uh, would, would be uh, almost a death nil. Now, for God's people, they had the promise of Messiah who would somehow be like the great rulers of the past, David, or perhaps Maccabees who actually drove out the ruling forces all out of Palestine. And so in their mind's imagination, when they thought about Messiah, they said, surely he's going to be one who bears a sword to drive out that sword. Is everybody following me? You remember the night Jesus is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane And his disciples are there, and they see what's beginning to unfold. And Peter, what did he do? He reached for what represented the power to confront the power of empire. He reaches for what? A sword. Right? And he reveals by his actions what he has concluded in his heart. To challenge the empire, in order even for there to be the presence of another kingdom, we're going to have to challenge this empire, and it will require the sword. Now, at this point, Peter hasn't even yet seen the altar of peace in Rome. I believe that later in his life he does. In fact, we'll see that here in a moment. But he's willing to confront what it represents with violence and force because that's, after all, what the empire represents to them. That peace really is not necessarily peace. It's just oppression. But then Jesus turns to Peter and says, put your sword back into its place. Those who live by the sword, what? Die by the sword, Matthew 26, 52. So, you know. Peter, there's a different power at work, and and it's so disorienting to Peter that not only does he run from the garden, later he denies Christ, right? Okay. So I want us to remember when we think, when we look at these words from Peter, because this is really important to get the context of what Peter is saying. When Peter's restored to love, he has this equally powerful shift in his thinking in his heart. It's as if he's crossed over from one type of thinking to another. Peter crosses over to a new way of thinking, understanding that the kingdom will not be defined by the power of empire as he's known it, but by the power of the love of God in the kingdom of God, which was revealed how? By a cross. In self-giving love and forgiveness, right? So he begins to see things differently. It's no longer about removing this empire and rising up in violence and force against it and pushing it away in order that something else could inhabit its space, but that, that by responding to what Jesus had revealed in his life and invited him towards, he could lay down his life and that kingdom would be revealed? So Peter writes this epistle that we're reading from today. Now, again, this is all backdrop because it's so important that we see this. He writes this most historians believe to write around AD 63 to 64. Maybe as early as 62, but I believe probably 63 to 64. He's probably already imprisoned in Rome. Now he's a prisoner Of the empire that he wanted to resist. And guess where he's at? Probably in Rome, which means that he's likely in the main prison on Palatine Hill, less than two kilometers from the altar of peace in Rome. He's imprisoned in the shadow the altar of peace. And something else happens right about this time. The emperor Diocletian, many historians believe that either he, it's quite possible that he set a fire or at least that when it began, he decided, good news for me, I wanted to rebuild some things. We'll just let this thing go. Two thirds of Rome burns while Diocletian stays out of the city, and some say that he even played a violin because he was really excited about what he was going to rebuild in that city. When public sentiment rises up against him, he chooses to blame Christians for the fire, and wholesale persecution comes against the Christ ones in the empire, beginning in Rome. Where's Paul? In prison. history places Paul's execution by crucifixion three months after the great fire of Rome, by crucifixion, hanging upside down by his choice. Remember this guy who wanted to pick up a sword? Now he's willingly laying down his life and he's writing these words, knowing The atmosphere that he is in. The empire has turned with fury and violence and rage against the Christ ones, falsely accusing them. Paul is writing to a people who are being hunted, scapegoated, executed by the power of the empire in the name of peace. Now at the end of chapter 1, He says, remember, you've been born again, not not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, the living and enduring word of God. So this is why this text begins to have such power when I read these words that Peter invites his friends who are persecuted. And in most of your translations, it will say, Long for or crave, this is what I want you to long for. You see, here's the longing that would have been awakened for many of us as we imagine ourselves in that place. Oh, how I wish somebody could change the narrative. We're really not responsible for burning down the city. We're being falsely accused. I long for justice. Earthly justice. And Peter says, long and crave for what? The spiritual milk that can make you grow. Long and crave for the revelation of the goodness of God when the world is crumbling around you. Do you see the power of this word? When you begin to drop it into its context, these are people that are being pursued by the empire. And Peter says, here's what's going to move your life and your witness of Jesus forward. Not resisting and overcoming the power of the empire, but a revelation of the goodness of, your, uh, of God in your life. That's almost worth a like a selah pause, isn't it? Because here's what I want us to hear. That's as true today now as it ever was. And coming to him, the living stone, Jesus. Wait a minute. There's another stone in the city that was representing peace. And Jesus, and here Peter says to those who are in the midst of a non-peaceful experience, and he says, come to him. Jesus, the living stone. I don't think that's a mistake. Beloved, it matters what stone you're paying attention to. And Peter reveals in his life, there was a time when he bought the party line, peace is only going to come by the power of the sword, resist the empire. Now to these seemingly powerless, intimidated, persecuted Christ ones, he exhorts them, be captured not by the abundance and the prosperity and the promised peace of the empire. He's under the shadow of that stone altar of peace called the state And he says life, peace, provision is from the living stone, Jesus. And you are becoming living stones. Oh, in order, remember those sacrifices? In order that you would offer up spiritual sacrifices. These aren't just pretty words. Peter is speaking out a very graphic language visually to a people that would go, oh, wow, I, oh, my goodness. To declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It feels really dark right now, Peter. Oh, but you're proclaiming light. Beloved, the good news that we proclaim today is that it really does matter what altar we're paying attention to and which one we're trusting. Today we proclaim a Savior who invites us to become, to become living stones, not inanimate objects, but a place that houses life, where the eternal life becomes visible and tangible, where light and mercy are seen and known. Now, let me me clarify something. I laid all that out. I I do want to say, I don't have anything necessarily in history that I can specifically point to that says Peter was specifically in the shadow of that specific altar peace. But I tell you what, as you look at history and you study it, they're pretty close. He probably was in the main prison of Rome. My point is that Peter was inviting his friends to be captured by another vision of seeing the kingdom of God, another empire, if you will, and I I don't want to even liken the kingdom of God to empire because it's usually empires associated with violence and power, wrongly used, but the kingdom of God revealed in and through our lives, which according to Jesus is revealed not by power, uh, not by violence and power, but by love and sacrifice. So, as I read these words, I want to invite us into the real-time choices that Peter was inviting his the, the followers of Jesus to choose, the choice that we're invited to embrace. Which stone is going to direct my life? See, we've been called to the place where the dimensions of eternity would be seen and known in my life. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you, you are living stones. How does an inanimate object become living? Well, again, I'm going to invite us uh, into some, just, just some, I told Denise, I said, I hope this doesn't sound too much like an Old Testament lecture. But for me, it's really fascinating stuff, okay, as you, as you tie these things together. All right, we, we looked at present history where Peter was. Now, for a Jewish person. When they heard the term "living stone," now they're not only seeing that altar that was there in Rome, but but there's something else in the Hebrew Scripture, Old Testament. So now, what would it have been a, been like for a a, a first-century Jew to hear Peter say, "You." Come to this living stone and are becoming living stones. Well, it would have not only been one where they said, oh, yeah, I I think I've heard about that altar in Rome, but for the Jewish mind, they would have gone, wait a second, Isaiah 28, 16. I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone. It was a reference to the promised Messiah. Now, that word stone, if you do a little study on that word, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but the Hebrew word for stone comes in three word, three letters, and they're really interesting. Uh, the aleph, which is the first, letter of the alphabet, the bet, which is the second one, and then about the 14th one, nun. Don't ask me to pronounce it. I can't. All right, so you got these three letters. But see, the Hebrew language was written in a pictorial sort of language, so each of those letters has reference to truth and has sort of a picture in originally in it. So the aleph was a reference to water, which is a reference always to the beginning. So you can even reference, you can go right down to Genesis 1. The bet is a reference to a house, which is a place of communion. The nun is a reference to fish, meaning provision. So you put all those ideas together, this stone becomes this place of communion, provision, it's the beginning point. So so wait a second. As I begin to read, and I'm a, I'm a Jewish believer, and I've read the Old Testament all life, and I hear Peter talking about a stone, and I think, wait, God laid this living, this, this stone, and it's a reference to Messiah. But as I think about the history of our people, I'm thinking, oh, wait, Genesis 28, 6, is Jacob is leaving, and it, you know he's like, oh, my goodness, where am I heading to? And he's running for his life, and he, he finds this place to, to sleep for the night, and he picks up a, Stone for a pillow. And he has this dream. And he wakes up and he says, Oh, that wasn't just a stone. This was the meeting place of God. God met me here and I didn't know it. It was this place of communion. Um, For a Jew, he might think about the idea that in Exodus 24, when God was giving his instruction to his people, he took out some tablets of, Stone, right? Come on, talk back to me. Yes, tablets of stone, by which he gives his law, which is a proclamation of his words to his people and an invitation that they would become a unique people. So it's this sign of covenant that God has made with his people. In Deuteronomy 27, 6, Moses gives these instructions, watch this, he says, when you cross over the Jordan into the promised land, so you're going to come to this place of promise, and all along God's given, you know, these stones become an object reminder of promise, and provision, and God meeting us, so when you go there, get a pile of stones and put it there paint them up with some line, and then you write the laws of God on those stones so that it's a visual declaration of God's provision and allowing you to cross over from one place to another into the promise of God. Peter, remember, he has this conversion experience when he encounters the love of God, and Jesus says, I I want to restore you. do, Do you love me? And something changes. He crosses over, from depending on his own strength and the idea of violence and force having to be necessary for the kingdom of God, all of a sudden he realizes, oh, wait, no, this is something different. God can reveal himself in and through my life. And so these stones become a story with God as symbols of his covenant, of communion, and of crossing over into the promise. It's this visual vehicle of God. So Peter says again to these people under the power of the empire with the literal altar of stone. You know, their their livelihood and their social structures that they've known are crumbling around them. The empire is after them. They're losing their rights. Things aren't what they used to be. Wait. That's starting to sound a little familiar. So Peter begins in 1 Peter 2, and and he starts out by saying, long for and crave the good old days. Oh, no, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say crave for a better empire. But he says, let the longing and the craving of your heart be for the goodness of God in the midst of that empire. So become living stones, beloved, where you understand that the provision of God is being revealed within your life and and that that living stone Jesus is seen. You know, I was sitting in a prayer meeting this last week, and toward the tail end of that meeting, I was hearing a couple of friends make some statements that I've heard before at times where they talk about where things are in our country, how haywire things have become. And we haven't got, you know, we, we, we really do need to, I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to get back to, the, to the, the, where our country began and the founding of our nation. I've heard those statements. And after an extended hesitation, I finally said, yeah, that would be good if you were male and white. I don't think that's what we're supposed to long for. And so, if you're not hearing me say this clearly, here's what I'm trying to say: that idea of the, you know, the the, the religion of the state, it still exists. And and sometimes we've even we've even put the seal on it, like God ordained it. Um, easy for us to point to Russia and say, "Look at that." Russian Orthodox Church just said it was okay for soldiers to go in violence against the Ukraine, and God is ordaining their life, and it's all going to be good. We're thinking, that's awful. We shake our head at it. Um, it's harder for us to see our own longing for empire. And I sit in a room, and I hear individuals say that, and I'm, and I'm saying, well, um Okay, you long for security, peace, and prosperity in the empire, but you remember that this empire, it came at the expense of things like manifest destiny that, that actually removed people from a land violently. Ask Native Americans what they think. Or, you know, I mean, you guys get my point. You know, Slavery, Jim Crow laws. It's it's all there. So, Lord, grant us grace that we would be fascinated by another vision, that the power of the kingdom does not come by the sword but by the cross. You remember at the very end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you know the one where he said, Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the meek and the gentle. They inherit the earth, not the ones who had the biggest sword. At the very end of that sermon, he said, Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The altar of peace is of Augustus literally crumbled into the sand upon which it was built. Following the fall of the Roman Empire, like many other things of the empire, it was lost to the sands of time. The only parts of it that were found in 1909 when they began to rediscover it, it wasn't until like the 30s that they finally said, you know what, we need to remove these buildings that have been built over it so that we can kind of rediscover what this is. And then it was the fascist empire of Mussolini that says, oh, ho, look at this. We need to be reminded of how great we once were. And they restored that altar in the name of the fascist empire, 1938. That's a true story. Beloved, the altar of peace of Augustus still exists. And I'm not talking about that building that's under a glass dome in Rome. You've already heard my point. May our loyalty... Be to the one who provides us actual peace and provision. We're invited to trust his agenda that leads to a cross. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. A place in God's kingdom where the the, the poor do inherit the earth. Where the persecuted are actually blessed. That's all in the same sermon. They build their life upon the rock. Second thing I want to I want to point to is this. In in my version that I usually study out of is the New American Standard says, you are, you are living stone. So Peter makes this proclamation of this. This is what you are. We need to be reminded. You're more than you imagined. You're more than what you see in the mirror. And when we compare ourselves to the value systems of the empire around us, we're always going to get it wrong. Look, I I feel so small when I look in the mirror. I feel like what I've done is so small. Living stones are not homogeneous. That means they're not all the same, but they're fit together. To become a dwelling in which God, Ephesians 2, lives and exists by his spirit. That's the idea of becoming. It's not that I've got to look at the size of who I am. It's who he is. Is there an amen in the room on that one, right? Amen? So that's the reality of the kingdom. So we're becoming. You are living stones who are becoming. The same God who he said in Genesis 1, let there be Light. That word in the original language means that something that wasn't there before comes into existence. John 1. John makes a reference to that creation, right? In the beginning. Uh, oh, how does that begin in John 1? <laughs> in the beginning. Uh, in the beginning. Uh, oh dear, it's not coming back to my brain. It will in a minute. But my point is in John 1, as he makes reference to Genesis 1, he was doing that for the very purpose of, of a reminder of of that word becoming, and then he says in John 1, to any who believed in him, he gave, gave them the right to become, verses, what is that, 13 and 14, to become, oh wait, the God who let there be light, who something came into being that wasn't there before, let them become children of God, not by natural birth, but by the work of God's spirit within us that we would become a representation, that something comes into existence that wasn't there before. A living stone from the God who said, let there be light. God, that even in this chaos, the love of the Father revealed in Christ could be known in my life. That is what I'm signed up for. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God that we could declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are living stones. And then that idea of coming to him. Let me close with that idea. Just this simple invitation. Beloved, coming to him. In our little evangelical brain, western mindset, coming to him. For me, most of my journey, it was seen as this idea that I made sure that I had a discipline, a prayer Devotion in my life that I would come to the Lord with my problems that I've come to Him. Anybody ever heard that kind of thinking? Sorry, right? I'm not. I'm not uh, poo-pooing prayer and devotion. I spend time in prayer almost every day. But that word is actually better translated, welcoming Him. So, see, the idea of coming to Him sounds like He's over there. You're going to go to where he is for a little bit, and then you got to get on with your life, right? Welcoming means that he's joining where I'm at, and we're doing life together. Allowing him to be present, living present, welcoming, consenting, if you will, to share my life. I often pray through Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is in me. And sometimes I'll just pause for a moment and God, and say, God, you know there's some ugly stuff I feel right now. But I want that, all of that to be present to the fact that you are good. Is that, are you following what I'm trying to share right now? Welcoming him. Beloved, the good news that we're proclaiming today is living stones is that it really does matter which altar that we're paying attention to and trusting. Today we proclaim a Savior who invites us to become living stones, not inanimate objects, but places of life where the eternal becomes visible and tangible, where light and mercy and love are known and seen. And that is good news. Amen? I want to invite us to close in prayer this morning with this prayer, if you would. Would you stand with me? And we're going to come to communion here in just a moment as well. Uh, But this prayer, let's pray this together. Those of you on the call, if you have something there nearby, if you'll grab it uh, to share in communion together, let's pray this prayer. Uh, There we go. Creator of the universe. You made the world in beauty and restore all things in glory through the victory of Jesus Christ. We pray that wherever your image is still disfigured by poverty, sickness, selfishness, war, and greed, the new creation in Jesus Christ may appear in justice. Pause for just a moment. You know, we, uh, Pastor Luis was... Uh, praying through Psalm 23, uh, that you guide me along pathways of justice, pathways that you guide me along the, the paths of righteousness, I've tried to change my wording because the original word actually means his justice, okay? Whenever you think of the word righteousness in the Old Testament, I challenge you to just think, Lord, that means your justice. All right, sorry, as I bunny trail in the middle of a prayer, All right, may appear in justice, love, and peace to the glory of your name, amen and amen.